protecting civilians is at the core of what you do and it's at the core of what I do. And I think that there are opportunities for us to work together in a lot of these theaters. Um, I think that it's important for us to sort of understand how, how each of our organizations operate and what the limitations are, but also what the opportunities to work together are. So I, I beg anyone that's in the military who's in, you know, anywhere that there's a humanitarian context to familiarize yourself with the OSHA always have civil coordination guidelines and to figure out where the red lines are, but where the opportunities for us to work together are and to build relationships with the humanitarian community. Thank you for tuning in to the 1CA podcast. I am your host, David Thompson. With me is Alexandria LaMarche. Alexandra is an advocate for Sub-Saharan Africa at Refugees International, where her work focuses on conflict, displacement crises, and peacekeeping. She led a research mission to Cameroon in March and April of 2019 to look at the internal displacement crisis and humanitarian situation there. Follow her on Twitter, at Ali Lam. Alexandra, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like humanitarian groups and armed forces should be spending a bit more, a bit more time trying to understand the ways in which we both work, so I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about your professional and educational history that got you to where you are today? Yeah, of course. Um, admittedly, it was not where I was anticipating ending up, but I'm pleased to finally be where I am. Um, I actually studied conflict and security with a focus on violent non-state actors at both the undergrad and the graduate level. And I always found sort of conflict dynamics to be very, very fascinating, but I eventually realized sort of overcome with guilt that I should be and could be involved in addressing sort of the human consequences of conflict. So I eventually shifted away from conflict analysis and resolution to work to assess and report on the needs of those displaced by the very violence that I was always working on. Wow, that's really interesting. So what got you interested in refugees and then more specifically to your area, IDPs? Well, while I was overcome with guilt and coming to the realization that I should be doing more to help people. Um, I was living and working in Lebanon, and with the ongoing crisis in Syria, we were witnessing hundreds of thousands of Syrians come into Lebanon and seeking safe refuge. And as I began to sort of delve into this issue of displacement, I noticed that in the context of displacement, um, internal displacement tends to be under the radar. If the displaced are not showing up in neighboring countries or in Western countries more specifically, uh, they tend to be forgotten um, in the eyes of the public, in the media and policymakers and international donors. Um, you know, most of the internally displaced are often staying with host families, whether they be their own family or their friends or just complete strangers who are offering them sort of a warm welcome. Um, people pay less attention to them and seem to think that they don't need as much as a refugee does, but in reality, often their conditions are far worse. Um, so as I, as I continue to work on displacement, that tends to be my focus because, you know, I, I, my heart bleeds for under the radar crises. Absolutely. A simple recent report from the United Nations Refugee Agency stated that there were nearly twice as many IDPs as there are refugees. Yeah, there's 41.3 um, million IDPs worldwide. Um, so that's a pretty significant portion of people if you consider it. I mean, I'm from Canada, and there's, what, 36 million people in Canada? So it's more than the entire population of Canada is internally displaced in whatever yeah, country they come from. If you add up the populations of IDPs with refugees, including Palestinian refugees, uh, it's like the populations of California and Texas combined. So pretty staggering numbers. 
staggering numbers that, I mean, surprisingly, the world continues to turn a blind eye to, unfortunately. Hmm. We're talking about it. We're not doing very much. Well, that gets us into Refugees International, where you work, which is a really unique organization in that they do not take any funding from the U.S. government or the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR. Can you tell us more about the work of Refugees International? Yeah, uh, Refugees International advocates for life-saving assistance and protection for displaced uh, populations and promotes solutions to these very crises. Um, we're not affiliated with any government. We don't accept any government funding or UN funding, which allows us to ensure the independence and credibility of our work. Um, and that's something that I find extremely valuable in the crisis where I work in Africa, where, you know, there's a lot of government crackdown and NGOs. We get to come in and be an independent voice without fearing of, you know, we don't fear getting kicked out of the country or having our operations lost. And we're also not tied to any of the international donors so we can be critical and, and target them in our advocacy. Um, so our, our business model is that we conduct field missions um, to crises, assess the needs of the displaced and how effectively they're being addressed by the humanitarian community, and then provide policy recommendations on how to better protect and better provide for those affected. Um, and then, you know, we, there's a long advocacy period after a, a report is published on that mission where we push for, uh, you know, policymakers within governments and UN agencies to hopefully enact those recommendations. Um, so we continue to engage on the crises. Uh, well after we left them. Who were your main audiences uh, post-report during that advocacy period? That definitely changes um, from country to country or crisis to crisis. Um, you know, obviously the U.S. government is always always a, the main target, given the fact that we're based in Washington, but we're seeing an increasing amount of time um, that our advocates are spending in, in other capitals, um, you know, in Geneva, especially because a lot of U.N. agencies are based there, in New York because other U.N. agencies are based there, um, in Canada, and, of course, in Brussels with the EU being based there. Um, I work in a lot of Francophone African countries, so there's a lot more interest from other Francophone countries. So it's a, it's a bit of a of a mix depending on the context and depending who the key players are. Well, so a very diverse group there. Uh, but let's talk yeah. more specifically about your recent trip to Cameroon. So recently you conducted research for Refugees International in Cameroon. Can you provide us a background of the situation or a history of the conflict that got us to the present day? Yeah, of course. Um, Cameroonian has long been viewed as a model for stability um, in the region fraught with conflict. I mean, it's a pretty rough, rough neighborhood, you know, surrounded by by Chad, Congo, um, Central African Republic, and Nigeria. And it's always been sort of economically a little bit more developed um, and, and far more stable given the fact that it has, what, 200 different linguistic groups. However, under the surface, uh, tensions between its Anglophone and its Francophone populations have been simmering for decades. Um, the Anglophone minority, which is mostly concentrated in the northwest-southwest regions of the country, um, has long been marginalized, discriminated against, and, and economically disenfranchised since the referendum that ended federalism and joined the two populations um, in, under one country in 1972. Um, in, in recent history, in 2016, that instability and that tension sort of gave way to violence when protests against the government's imposition of Francophone teachers and lawyers in Anglophone schools and courts were met with military action. Um, what we witnessed was peaceful protests being met with pretty extreme violence from the, the Cameroonian military, and that sort of just 
fueling separatist sentiment that was was bubbling under the surface, but not nearly as strong as it as it is now. Um, armed groups have since sort of multiplied and enforced school boycotts. We're now in we're about to approach the third year of children not attending school, and the subsequent violent confrontations between the armed groups and the armed forces have forced more than half a million people to flee their homes um, and 1.3 million people in need of assistance. So it's pretty pretty big numbers, um, pretty fast as well. We, see, we saw those numbers pretty skyrocket over the last year. Um, both armed groups and Cameroonian forces have targeted civilians and blocked humanitarian groups from reaching those in need, and it's a truly dire situation. Um, but with the right pressure and the right elbow grease, I think we could initiate some change. Wow, those numbers, you're talking 500,000 displaced, 1.3 million in need of assistance. And that seems to be a, a common thing where governments respond to peaceful protesters by using violence, and then it creates more problems for the government and the people. It does. I mean, you know, I, I can't go back in, in time and see what would have happened, but I I don't think that the crisis would be nearly as bad or, or the the violence even from armed groups would be nearly what it is right now if armed, if, if the armed forces hadn't responded the way they had. Um, but that's just my own hypothesis. Absolutely. So from reading your report and hearing you talk, I noticed the tension between the government of Cameroon providing support for refugees fleeing violence from Boko Haram while simultaneously denying access to IDPs. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it sort of goes against Cameroon's um, sort of longstanding reputation in the region as being fairly welcoming of of refugees from neighboring countries. I mean, it has a, a, a relatively long history of welcoming people from neighboring neighboring conflicts. It, it still hosts, you know, scores of Central Africans in the East, and, it, and it's, you know, has obviously been grappling with the issue of Boko Haram with displaced Nigerians and also Cameroonians um, up in the area called the Extreme North around the Lake Chad Basin where Boko Haram operates. Um, however, the access that has been afforded to humanitarian groups in those regions is much better, <laughs> much better, that's not a true saying, but it's, it, it, um, it has not been hindering humanitarian access in those areas the way that it has pretty almost completely done in the Anglophone areas. A group present in the Northwest, Southwest, we are speaking out against the governments and have reported that um, after they publicly reported on the extent of the needs that the government authorities have blocked their access to populations, not only the Anglophone populations, the Northwest, Southwest, but also in the extreme north. So there's, you know, some pretty significant intimidation from the government on that front. Um, and some international governments have been calling for unrestricted humanitarian access, but frankly, these calls have been a pretty weak. Um, and the government's negative role in the conflict goes beyond blocking access. The government is, you know, perpetrating violence against the civilian population. It has repeatedly demanded that international NGOs and UN agencies publicly state that they support government forces and that if they did that, then they would provide them unrestricted access, but this would be against humanitarian principles, and that's, that's you know, not a possibility for a lot of humanitarian groups. Do you want to make some money? Do you have an idea about how to better integrate civil affairs? If you do, then check out the Civil Affairs Association Call for Papers. Civil affairs integration surfaced as the forefront issue for the future development of the regiment at the conclusion of last year's discussion at the Washington, D.C. Roundtable. 
However, in order for civil affairs to become a better joint force for integration across multiple domains in human geography, the regiment must first better integrate itself, then with those it works for, by, with, and through. The Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite civil military professionals to send an originally written issue paper by no later than the close of business Friday 30 August. To better assist authors, you can find recent papers, reports, and articles, as well as an array of cited references and historical documents, and the new online research library under the association website page, Resources. You can also call upon the new Publications Advisory Board for assistance. They'll help you in crafting the argument for your paper. The top five papers will appear in the 2019-20 Civil Affairs Issue Papers, and authors will present them at the CA Symposium in Tampa, Florida in October. First prize is $1,000, second prize $500, and third prize $250. Good luck to all the authors. This is on another key point in your report, humanitarian principles. Can you share with the listeners what humanitarian principles are and why they're important? Of course. The humanitarian principles, there are four of them. There's humanity, which is that um, human suffering must be addressed wherever it's found. Um, neutrality is that humanitarian actors must not take sides in the hostilities. Um, impartiality is that humanitarian action must be carried out on the basis of need alone and giving priority to the um, most urgent cases of distress, um, not based on, on any type of other factor. Um, and one of the very important ones, obviously they're all extremely important, um, is independence. Uh, humanitarian action must be autonom autonomous from the political, economic, military, and other objectives. Given the complex conflict dynamics found in situations where humanitarian aid is often needed, adopting a principled approach is critical in order to distinguish humanitarian action from the activities and objectives of political, military, and other actors. Um, adhering to these principles allows for increased and sustained access to different populations in need. Um, in the context of the conflict of the Northwest, in the Northwest-Southwest of Cameroon, um, it is important for local populations to trust that humanitarian groups are not affiliated to either armed groups or the government. Um, it's important to note that most of them do not feel represented by the armed groups or the uh, official Cameroonian government. Um, so any type of you know, with that they get that anyone is cooperating with anyone or siding with anyone means that they won't allow access even to their own populations. Um, it continues to be a problem, especially with such a heavy-handed government that is blocking aid and also with armed groups blocking aid. Um, we've been trying to educate uh, the Cameroonian population and even the diaspora here in the U.S. on what these humanitarian principles are because some armed groups have viewed international aid as equating international support for their separatist cause and other people have, you know, within the government, they have been requesting that organizations sort of publicly support government forces and government action and, and the government's approach, which is a purely militarized response. Um, so we've been trying to sort of, you know, hammer in that message that we are based on humanity, neutrality, impartiality, and independence, um, and that those cannot be you know, there's, there's no wavering on them whatsoever. Um, and that's been a, it's been a major, major challenge. And I think especially with the Cameroonian authorities, it's been a major challenge considering how they are completely aware of what humanitarian principles are and they're willing to respect them and work around them in the two other crises in the extreme north and with the Central African refugees that are in the east. So I think that there's a certain level of playing dumb on it. It's, it's not that they're not aware of it. 
Um, but with the civilian population, it's really important that they know that and that they know that, you know, we do have to negotiate access with all parties to the conflict, and that negotiation does not equate any type of support. Do these humanitarian principles work independently, or is it collectively? Is it like an all-or-nothing approach, or if the government say they want to implement two of the four, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's, I wouldn't even say it's an all or nothing. It's an all, it's an all approach. I mean, it, we need to be as principled. Um, sometimes that means, you know, I think the different organizations often have different understandings of what each principle are, it like is and what it stands for and what that implies. Um, but I do think that it's of paramount importance and we have to continue to strive for it. And as organizations, you know, sometimes have to, have to appear maybe less neutral in order to gain access to a certain population. And sometimes there is a bit of, you know, not that there has to be leeway, but we're sort of pushed up against. And then ultimately the, the principle of humanity is, is what trumps everything. We, we do need to be providing for these populations. And sometimes organizations have been forced to, you know, overlook other parts of the core humanitarian principles in order to make sure that that happens. It's definitely not something that we strive for. And I would always say that it's an all or nothing. Um, deal it's a package deal but um i don't think that 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 decision comes from the humanitarian group and each organization will make that decision on its own each un agency will make that decision on its own um so that's important to know and even if you look at sort of groups that are not traditionally humanitarian like the icrc has slightly different principles so everyone operates under their own sort of set of values but are mostly guided by these humanitarian principles very nice. I think the way you termed it, a package deal, really touches on the importance of it. Yeah, and I think, you know, by by letting one fall by the wayside, you're, you're, you're harming your own ability to access these populations, right? In the long run, you, you, you gain more by adhering to all four than giving up one for the short term. Um, but obviously, that, that's great in theory, but sometimes, unfortunately, that, that's not the case. Absolutely. What countries do you see conducting advocacy for IDPs in Cameroon? Um, international engagement on this issue has been quite surprising, actually, because we're seeing people who are usually vocal not be vocal, and we're hearing people who are usually pretty silent be pretty vocal. Um, the UK and France, which are obviously the linguistic and colonial sort of powers in the country historically, um, have taken very different approach. The UK has been completely, completely silent on the issue, has not addressed it publicly, and has also provided no humanitarian funding. Um, France has publicly supported the Cameroonian authorities' approach to the issue, which is to solely take a militarized response, um, and has also not provided any humanitarian funding. While there are signs that France might be changing its tune a little bit, not outside the country at the embassy level, but mostly at the UN level. Um, the Swiss have been, the Swiss, they're very, very quiet and they're practicing a lot of um, private and quiet diplomacy, as they put it. They've been pushing for a lot of negotiation efforts, which is, you know, always welcome. However, um, all parties to the conflict have publicly stated that they will not negotiate with one another. So the idea that this will be fruitful in the short term is a little bit, um, it's not that it's a wasted effort, but there's a lot more that needs to be done on, on other fronts. Um, strangely enough, Canada has been um, surprisingly uh, vocal about it and also has provided a uh, million dollars Canadian um, in terms of humanitarian funding, which is 
pretty low in general, but also pretty high for Canada and pretty high compared to the other donors in, in, in that region. Um, it's important to note the U.S. has only given $300,000 to the Northwest-Southwest crisis, despite 1.3 million people being in need. Um, we saw an effort at the U.N. level. There was um, uh, a meeting called the ARIA Formula Meeting, co-hosted by Germany, the U.K., the U.S., and the Dominican Republic um, on the crisis. Um, in the Northwest-Southwest, and that was a, a great effort from those four countries at the UN level, and we saw that they were really shedding light on the humanitarian needs, which is great because the UK had been pretty absent on the issue, and the US was sort of focusing a lot of its efforts on dialogue um, and looking at the military side, but not so much on the humanitarian side, but, but it turned out that it seems that all they did was host a conference on it, and there's been little effort um, from three out of the four to really engage with it. Germany is you know, continues to look into how it can play a bit a bigger role, and I know it's trying to rally the other three countries um, into continuing its engagement on the country and on the crisis, and, and hopefully lead to a humanitarian um, engagement or coordination on that front. Um, but you know, the crisis is only nine percent funded, and the needs are only increasing. Um, and the longer humanitarians have to wait to be, to be able to provide humanitarian assistance that more mistrust is bred within the population. Um, so it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a catch-22. You mentioned the U.S. working for dialogue with the Cameroon, the Cameroonian military, and I think the majority of our audience is probably going to be U.S. listeners and being the one CA podcast, the significant military representation within that listener base. So, one thing they may be really interested in is hearing what role you see for the U.S. military and particularly civil affairs. So if you had a wish list for this situation, what would it be? Yeah, I think that the U.S. has a really important role to play. And Cameroon has cooperated really closely with the U.S. in the fight against Boko Haram for years. Um, you know, given the history of U.S. and USG has played, um, it's been it's been good that the U.S. government has been publicly calling out the Cameroonian military and the government's role in the ongoing violence, but that is not quite enough. I mean, it's great to have a powerful voice, especially at the ambassador level in Cameroon um, and from um, the Hill here in D.C. However, that you know, these are just words. We need a bit more action. Over the last five years, Cameroonian security forces have received over $216 million in U.S. counterterrorism training and support. And while allegations that the Cameroonian military had committed abuses ranging from, you know, arbitrary detention to torture and extrajudicial killings to the burning down of entire villages, um, it led to the U.S. cutting a lot of its military assistance to the Cameroonian forces. Um, that sort of sent the signal that the U.S. was was willing to engage and was, you know, it was a public acknowledgement that the Cameroonian authorities had been involved in the terrible crisis. But the measly humanitarian funding sent conflicting signals to the Cameroonian authorities, to the Cameroonian population, especially the Anglophones that are affected by the crisis, and to other international powers. Um, the U.S. so far has been focusing its efforts on calling for parties to negotiate. So that's going to continue to fall on deaf ears. Um, so that there needs to be a little bit more. And then when it comes to the U.S. military, I think that it was, you know, everyone was so pleased to see that the U.S. was willing to go so far to cut its military assistance to the Cameroonian forces, especially to the, um, so it was the Rapid Response Battalion, known as the Beer, that the U.S. had trained, which is the one perpetrating the violence against the civilians now. Um, 
but, you know, we have to acknowledge that having people in extreme need will only continue to further destabilize the region and that the U.S. can be playing a role now on the humanitarian side in addition to just calling out publicly, you know, the wrongdoing of the Cameroonian authorities and the Cameroonian military. You mentioned that the U.S. withdrew the military, so that does limit some of the specific asks that you could recommend to the military. Uh, perhaps in retrospect, what recommendations or specific asks would you give to the military, and particularly perhaps civil affairs? Yeah, there's definitely a retrospective wish list. Um, and it's either, I mean, c- cutting military assistance sends a really, really strong signal, but it also just leaves people um, unmonitored, right? So if, if if the decision was finally to leave, um, then there was, I think there's a lot that um, the U.S. military, including civil affairs, should have done before leaving. And a lot of that is sort of, you know, gaining as much information as, as humanly possible, and maybe that happened and I'm unaware of it. Um, and all of this stuff happens on the radar, um, and relaying it to the embassy and headquarters staff. I think that that would have been really, really important, especially when it comes to the humanitarian needs. I think that, um, you know, I, I don't know what that, what that process of packing up and leaving was actually like for civil affairs or for the U.S. military. Um, it's something that we get much visibility on. So I think that, that to, have a to be able to paint an accurate picture of what the situation was, what violence was occurring, um, you know, who was responsible for the violence and what was the human consequence in the Northwest Southwest, I think would have been very, very important. Um, you know, we are seeing footage of Cameroonian forces torturing, you know, civilians in a base that used to be used by the US military. Like there's there's a lot that that, you know, there's there's a crossover here and I think that the US military, despite having sort of cut ties in some form or fashion, there's still a level of responsibility and, um, you know, whatever can be done to continue to shed light on the consequences of the Cameroonian military's actions and and sort of, I think that that's where the U.S. military can continue to play a role, you know, not retrospectively, but now in the future on making sure that, that whatever training the U.S. military gave the Cameroonian forces is not now, mis- you know, continues to be misused. Alexandra, it's been a pleasure having you on the 1CA podcast. This has been a very informative and eye-opening discussion. I encourage everyone to check out Refugees International work and look up Alexandra's reports. Thank you for sharing your time and experience, and I will leave the last word to you. Um, I guess my last word is that, you know, protection of civilians is at the core of what you do, and it's at the core of what I do, and I think that there are opportunities for us to work together in a lot of these theaters. Um, I think that it's important for us to sort of understand how, how each of our organizations operate and what the limitations are, but also what the opportunities to work together are. So I, I beg anyone that's in the military who's in, you know, anywhere that there's a humanitarian context to familiarize yourself with the OSHA always have civil coordination guidelines and to figure out where the red lines are, but where the opportunities for us to work together are and to build relationships with the humanitarian community. Alexandra, thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.